Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. G'day, Nina. How are you? Welcome back. I know. It's nice to be back. It's good. You're you're looking very military style today. (laughs) Just trying to keep me in order, eh? Yeah. This is the 2024. i got to make sure you keep on track. I'm not succeeding so far, I've got to say. No, you're not succeeding at all. Okay, well, look, today we're doing a mix of things today, I think is the best way to describe it. We're going to look at the new code from Safe Work Australia. A lot of people say one of two things about that. One of them, they say it's, you know, it's huge, it's massive. It's not. It does change things in an important way, and we'll talk about that. And the second thing is, well, it's not relevant to Victoria because it hasn't been adopted and for the people who say that. I don't think it's been adopted anywhere yet. No, no. Well, yeah. it's, that's sort of a non theory, though, because the, rel- the truth is it's, it's out still, there as a test of yeah, reasonable practicability and, mm. it, and it does show you what you can do. So what we're trying to do and we've tried to do all last year is not be chicken littles, not say the, the sky's fallen. It's your favourite thing. Well, it is a little bit because <laughs> I've been watching a lot of lawyers doing chicken little behaviour recently over the new legislation. When workplace law changes, it's it's not as dramatic as people think it is because workplaces deal with people and people's behaviour continues, the level of supervision continues, the lack of money within regulators continues, and unless people reach out to plaintiff lawyers or unions, and unions are decreasing in relevance, and the truth is plaintiff law firms are particularly, well, I won't say what state in, but in some states, not so much in Victoria, are pretty out there. What we've seen is that employers continue to get away with behaviour that doesn't meet legal requirements every day. That doesn't mean you should do it, but it means that the changes you should implement are ones which are calibrated changes rather than dramatic changes because what keeps the world going is culture. And if you've got a culture, good or bad, the transition to something different doesn't happen tomorrow. Yeah. So doing it in bite-sized pieces is, is really important. So... Hopefully the cases we've got today will, will show you where the law actually intrudes to and where risks is. And so let's start off on that with Dendy Cinemas, I think, the, the first case. Yeah, so this one is interesting because we've had a bit of a debate with it because I think, once again, workers' compensation law is a joke. But well, no, no, one, no, one, no one in there or here is disagreeing with you. Well, in this <laughs> Um, case. So one of the Dendi employees had a heated exchange on Facebook with a previous colleague and a current colleague. And it was about the fact that he had attended Dave Chappelle, who was a US comedian show, and evolved. And he basically said, look, can't come to work anymore. I'm really, really concerned about how I'll be treated at work as a result of the post. And he filed a workers' compensation claim. So just stop for a second. Was he compensated? I just wanted you to think about that. One, two, three. No, he wasn't. And he went through an appeal process and failed. Yeah. And what they said is it didn't arise out of the course of employment and it wasn't a matter where he was at work and one of the break cases and he did something outside of the breaks which was condoned or otherwise. But what I want to say about this case is it's this far away from being compensable. Why? crazy. When you look at the social media cases of -of out-of-work behaviour, you look at what was this? So this isn't workers' comp, but out-of-work behaviour, which is di- you could discipline. If an employee identified themselves or was in the process where they could be identified as, a, as an employee and they said or did something to another person which was misconduct of a kind, particularly a more agrarious kind of yeah, misconduct, or made them like feel bullying, unsafe, then they could definitely discipline and terminate. The victim of that 
would definitely be compensable because workplace law says it's a wrong that's been committed, therefore what happened to the person was a wrong. Now, what the social media cases say, it has to be visible during working hours. This was visible during working hours. It wasn't done during working hours, but though. It's still like because visible. of social media, it's yeah. always visible. So the yeah. only thing that stops this from being compensable is, and, of course, workers' comp didn't identify any, the case didn't identify these issues, is whether the person identified and the nature of the conduct. And all they talked about was nature of conduct, not identification. Yeah, because it wasn't bullying behaviour. Yeah. yeah, it's a difference. Yeah. So can you see the difference between, you know, I grew up in a house where argumentation happened around the dinner table every <laughs> night and eight out of every ten was just argumentation and two was bullying, <laughs> particularly from my father, my deceased late father. He's not here to defend himself. My point about it is it's only that far. So this could come from a non-compensable, non-workplace law case to very quickly a workplace case against a wrongdoer and a workers' compensation claim that the employer could do nothing about. Yeah, that's the crazy thing. There's literally, if all of those things were met, there's literally nothing that the employer could have done. Even if they had a social media policy and stuff, if all of that happened, there is no way to defend against that claim, which is no. just crazy. Which is why I put it in there, to be honest, Nina, because then I said, to, I said to Kim, this is the craziest case I've ever read because it tells you what could happen. Anyway, let's go on. Let's go on to Midwell Everett's case, which is... The tendon one. Yeah, the discrimination case. Just to give you a bit of background, it, it's very common when you're doing a fitness for duty to seek medical assessment of a person, you know, to get the, their doctors but then to get an independently checked because unquestionably under those circumstances, safety law says to you, you must be satisfied a person is mm. safe to return to work. There's a whole range of cases which provide you from Ramsey all the way through those yeah. cases that say you're allowed to do it so long as it's based reasonably. But this is a case about somebody who ruptured a... a yeah, it was a non-work injury where they ruptured their Achilles yeah. heel. So, and Achilles ten, tendon is really thick tendon which has poor circulation around it. They heal slowly. 18 months, you said. Yeah, 18 months is the usual time for rehabilitation in the Kellys. So depending on your age, me, around me, it's probably never walk again. But for younger people, 18 months. He, after four-month period, said he was fit to return to work and his GP said he's fine to return to work. Yeah, they said there was a low risk of it exacerbating his yeah. injury. But part of the reason they said that is they didn't understand the true nature of the work that this tug operator was involved in. Yeah, he purposely didn't disclose the physical Which involved of incredibly heavy weight bearing and movement yeah. on his heels that would expose him to tendon damage at the best of times. So great case because he brought a discrimination claim. Of a million dollars. Yeah, there was a lot of people who go for seven figures. The point about it was is the argument against it was very successful. It just said, well, look, no, you didn't fully disclose the nature of your injury or the nature of your work. Good nature of injury doctor dealt with and said, no, look, I've seen what it is, but the doctor didn't know the work he did. Therefore, it wasn't safe. But it also triggered our entitlement to determine mm. that we could have him assessed. And the assessment said, no, not safe. So I just want to remind people that when you're on risk, and this is particularly with psychological injuries, where the person has returned to work is going to be problematic in psychological injuries because of a loss of self-esteem and a whole lot of other related issues. It behoves you not to just accept what their general practitioner or particularly a psychologist says because they will say anything yeah. without damaging the profession too badly. 
you've got to be in a position where if you have a reasonable doubt that the person will be safe to return to work and will not be injured by returning to work or will still injure another person when returning to work, that the correct evidence is placed before somebody independent before a decision is made and all the threats of discrimination and general protections will fall away so long as you have an objective basis for doing it. I think that's the key because there are a lot of cases where employers have just assumed the employee is lying and then yeah. just sought to terminate without that reasonable basis and without that medical evidence and they just get torn apart. Yeah, by so reasonable means not scuttlebutt, okay? Reasonable means, look, this is the job description, this is the nature of the injury. You can Google it a bit and go, hmm, that's not so. Yeah, not sure that's right. No, I think that's real. Please don't self-diagnose on Google. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't be Dr Andrew. But yeah. do inform yourself as to the nature of the injuries the person's suffering and then look at the organisation they're coming back, the job description or the nature of the interactions they're going to have and then if you're concerned about it, you've documented what your concerns are. Remember, documentation is critical. Here's the job description. This is what work looks like. These are the problems the person had before. Yeah, we do need some comfort. At the stage of saying do need some comfort, it's a lawful and reasonable direction for them to be involved, okay? So, again, a case that didn't go anywhere but could have gone somewhere if they hadn't done it so well. So it's nice to see yeah. the driving logic behind it. Let's go on to the United Firefighters case. We, we another love, case that didn't go anywhere. Another case that didn't go anywhere. <laughs> so intractable bargaining was one of the, the new pieces of legislation to stop the arbitration that happened post the... the and market. the standstills, really, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. But to stop the, the Boeing cases and things that used to exist before, this the idea of this was to give the Fair Work Commissioner some powers over compulsory negotiation and then when and if that failed, the power then to make an order which was like an arbitration. So that's what it's meant to do. The misgivings around it were that the threshold was too high, and that it favoured unions and that favoured... No, 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 they favoured employers and it's now been changed. No, no, the new change I'm talking about. Oh, the new change. No, you're right. So in the past, favoured employers, you're quite right. So, and that was from Curtin um, where they actually stripped away all the entitlements under an enterprise agreement and went back to an award. So this, the complaint from everybody who is in industry is this is union-friendly. And I don't think this case reveals that at all. I think this is probably... To no. me, this case has got a proper balance about it. But, yeah, I think this was quite a reason. You know, that, there's some terrible parts about it. They'd had 17 meetings. The union had got stuck on a high wage level. Yeah, we probably should give a bit more yeah, of that. Yeah, I, I so should, instead of me making Basically, Venture <laughs> <laughs> Australia and the United Fighter Fires Union had been <laughs> locked in or struggled to negotiate and bargain since about September 2022. Yep. And I think about August 2023, they had although they hadn't agreed on everything, put forward a proposed enterprise agreement and the majority of the workers voted no. And at that stage, Venetia, which is the organisation, was in the middle of a tendering process in respect to its whole business enterprise yeah. for which this, this agreement underpinned it. Yeah, so they said it wasn't sure that they would get that and it kind of they said that they couldn't really move from their position. Yeah. And I think after that they did apply for an intractable bargaining decision and you said they were subjected to directions from the Fair Commission? Yeah, so there'd been some compulsory bargaining that had been gone. And what had happened is two things. On one hand, Venetia ended up being the sole person in the tendering process, so the likelihood of them getting it was high. Mm. Of course, if the price changed and you put in a tender, that can make it unprofitable. So it's still a risk that's set out there. So that part had changed. There was greater certainty. And at the last meeting, although there had been a lull in negotiations, the unions had 
indicated they're willing to move on weight. Yes, yeah, which is the big thing. Yeah. So, in fact, the intractable bowing order was working. It was providing directions, directions working. working. Yeah. It was providing the pressure and the firefighters were not getting the money. So it's the old pressure in all negotiation is unless you agree you don't get the money. Yeah. That's a significant pressure. So when you say to somebody over a two-year period when you've had inflation running at 13%, no, no increase, at the end the union start to use leverage, start to lose leverage around that. So I think this is a really good case. Yeah, so they tried to like cut through all of that and apply for an intractable bargaining decision and the Fair Work Commission said no on those because of the reasons. And the third reason they said is and you haven't been bargaining recently. Yeah. So <laughs> it was really anticlimactic, but I think it was done for like on reasonable grounds to not grant the order because there's clearly room to be and the purpose of it is only when there's a standstill. Yeah. So still no intractable bargaining decision yet. Um, okay, look. The next thing I want to talk to is, and this is more for Victorian people, but it's actually relevant all around Australia, which is the review of sentencing in OHS. So there's a, another advisory council that's been set up to do that so that the government doesn't have to make a tough decision. Yeah, so yeah. the thing is just commence. And yeah. so the consultation paper will be out in February. And look, I think all we're going to see is what we saw in New South Wales, which is a large ramping up of penalties, yeah. particularly in what we'd normally call the Category 2 penalties, which went right up in New South Wales and Category 1 Left. Yeah, I think industrial mental yeah. will definitely increase. So I think we're going to see a move away from uh, $3 million in which is the reckless endangerment sort of price to to sort of 5 or $10 million, so mm-hmm. that there's that parity between industrial manslaughter and recklessness. We may see a higher sentencing of 10 years for reckless endangerment. I think we're going to start seeing, as we've seen throughout Australia, a ramping up of penalties. Yeah, but do you think it's really more to address the fact that they're quite in debt because, like, each time they try to significantly increase this thing, I don't know if it's actually made a difference in deterring people from Yeah, doing well, the evidence has always been that individualising a sentence does have some deterrence effect and by locking people up it does and by increasing penalties and taking away insurance it was a cost that most organisations are willing to bear. So it will provide a heightened state of awareness. So it will change some behaviours. But New South Wales, when it had the reverse onus test effectively, was actually a profitable state from the prosecutions that ran. That's what I mean. I feel like it's more going to do that rather than actually address the key objects of the Act. Yeah. But look, at the end of the day, we're going to see higher sentencing, and this is probably what Nina and I have been chatting about for the the last two years. We've seen courts much more willing to impose higher sentence. We've seen that recently in the case we're going to talk about Mm -hmm. next. We're seeing them much more willing to imprison people. We're starting to see the criminalisation of safety as a cultural thing within the courts as a reality. Yeah. And we're starting to see regulators getting out from behind the curtains and saying, no, let's go after people. We're not just naming and shaming, we're really punishing people. And that will have a deterrence and, and, and it will highlight some issues. So the higher the sentence go, obviously the more daunting it is. And it's probably a good time to swing through to Safe Work New South Wales um, and Chris Large, isn't it? Yeah, interesting case, that one. So this is dealing with heavy vehicles and fatigue, okay? Mm. Most of you who are out there will have drivers who have some liability around this particular logistic business, obviously very high. This is a very high compliance-driven part of safety, much higher compliance than we see in manufacturing plants. Yeah. So there is constant vigilance around it. There is regular checking. But the punishments to date, there's been a couple of $600,000 fines I think this one was quite unique yeah. because it was very high, but also it was like 
attributing liability to a very senior officer who was quite... So, yeah, the penalties were yeah. $2.3 million for the company and yeah. three years jail. For the officer, for the, the National officer. Operations Manager. Yeah. But this was a person who knew, and this is after a terrible fatal incident with a truck driving where four police were killed. Yeah, so the yeah. truck driver fell asleep at the wheel. Yeah. And, yeah. So, but the issue about all this was, and I guess as reporting improves, this is going to become an increased risk but also the nature of businesses, particularly logistics business, operational people have a very deep knowledge and they're out there on the tracks all the day knowing who's good because the margins in logistics are 2 to 3%. Mm. So the leader is constantly driving the behaviours and conduct and this leader knew fatigue was substantial. Even after the incident, over 40% of people at some stage were suffering fatigue. No, it was before. Before. Was yeah, so seven the months before the accident, there was evidence that 40% of the drivers had fatigue-related incidents and those were condoned and encouraged by yeah. him and other senior staff. So the point about that is... Terrible, but in that industry where margins are so low, where there's fixed pricing, where the rates of costs of fuel and things, you are really fighting a very tough time with it. And so people do become complacent as to the nature of real risk that sits within it. And they think, well, we've had a few incidents, but they're just incidents. Well, look, you think about the last four or five safety prosecutions we've been involved in, the behaviours that led to the fatality or the serious injuries were ones that had happened on many occasions beforehand because nobody got injured on the times mm -hmm. before. And so people form a view, look, it's bad, but it's not that bad and we can get through this and we've got to make a profit, so just get going. And if you look at some of the industries we're in, like the meat industry, which, again, is a low-margin, high-risk industry, those behaviours live and exist in family-based business and have for 50 years because the families who are working in it were actually been bonus. They've, mm. they've been on the kill floor. They've done all the things. And so they're, they're blind to it. They've been desensitised by risk. But this is a really important case, not for heavy vehicles, but for all safety because that type of fine and that sort of imprisonment stands out. Yeah. And it shows with that state of knowledge, the safety regulator who prosecutes in New South Wales both heavy vehicles but also industrial safety is going to be making those sort of decisions and it brings into sharp focus psychological hazards and what's going to happen in the next coming two years. So we thought we should bring that one to you quickly. Let's just jump over to the main topic because we're not going to have a ton of time for it, which is sort of fortunate really in some ways because there's not a lot to say about it. The new code, not surprisingly, moves on from the psychological hazards and uses the same methodology. But it, it acknowledges the importance of them and tells you to use both in conjunction, which is really good because that's yeah. what you should be doing. And look, in Victoria, when, when you looked at that code, that code forms part of the regs mm -hmm. and the draft they put out, both regs and code, which set out the four agrarian breaches of psychological hazards, one of which was sexual harassment. This deals expressly, it's got some really helpful directions about we were just chatting before about the types of things it alerts you to yeah. which are the hazardous environment and design and interestingly none of it's only one part but I think we both agree we took the show and that's a good reminder but yeah. the rest of it was the things we say data collection yeah and getting that internally through easy sources like you know we always say look at your exit interviews absenteeism like the hr records yeah like do, all that stuff yeah, yeah do your slice audits do those sort of things yeah get the information do some small surveys yeah consult with your employees yeah and then get that that mud map that says gee over here we've got an issue yeah. let's deal with it 
train people, make sure they're competent, be vigilant, train supervisors, reward their involvement and engagement to prevent those from leadership issues. down. Yeah. All of that is, is exactly All good. Now. Can you see this isn't a game changer? But it is a really helpful reminder. But let's, before I get to the helpful reminder, <laughs> but the one thing that they did raise, which that Nina was talking to me about before, is it does go back to workplace design. So yeah. if the physical environment is close-knit, and let's use a really good example of the type of environment where this risk is high, and that's call centres, yeah. where you've got itinerant workers, you've got a mixture of immigrant workers, itinerant workers, you've got high drug and alcohol use through a young group of people who are non-migrant-based workers. They're in very close proximity to each other. They share a small lunchroom together. Mm. There's significant pressure and it's repetitive. You get all the bullying behaviours, you get all the sexual harassment, you get all of those things happening because the physical environment is conducive to it. Or, and the other reason is, because it's very difficult to supervise. Yeah. So environments which push people closely together under stress with an odd mixture of high-risk people in the environment are, by nature, high-risk. Environments without supervision, incredibly high-risk, and that means skilled, competent supervision. So it might be a road crew in local government goes out. Sure, they've got a foreman, but he's been there for 35 years. He's He's got a couple of women working there and he doesn't really like it. Yeah. So is he going to say anything when someone makes some sexist joke about, can you lift that love? Yeah, exactly. You know, they, are they going to say those sort of things? They're the work design issues that this actually focuses on. And can I say it's a great thing. I think this is helpful. But I think so too. Like. Whenever people think about how do you deal with this kind of stuff, they just think train people, discipline, enforce it, which is all good. You should do, be doing all of that. But remember in the hierarchy of control, the first thing is to try to eliminate it. And if that means looking at the physical design, like outside of your example of those, there'll be things like people working in a restaurant and there are known perpetrators who make gross comments, right? And I've talked to friends in the past where they said, like, I don't know what to do, like they keep coming, they're regulars. Well, you shouldn't be putting people subject no. to that. You should be changing the roster, doing things like that. Like, oh, and excluding, people, and excluding yeah, the Yeah, people need to think a bit more outside the box. And what this code is saying is you can't just apply the tried and true normal things that everyone thinks about because the regulator thinks there's other ways that you can resolve it and that they're better, then you'll be essentially in breach. And look, the, the thing that we really brought this up for, this is my chicken little stuff, is you can see it doesn't change the world. It is a game changer in this way. It introduces into safety legislation a clear definition of what is reasonably practical around sexual harassment and gender-based violence and discrimination within organisations. didn't exist before, which means... And as the regulator in all states and territories starts to prosecute issues of bullying and sexual harassment, you've now got a test that is out there. And for those people who happily say, oh, but uh, Victoria hasn't adopted this, it doesn't change. No. A Victorian regulator is to go and is allowed to look, sorry, a Victorian court is allowed to look at what is reasonably practical. It can be informed by industry standards. One of those industry standards, even whether though it hasn't been adopted, is Safe Work Australia's model. model. So, yeah, and also on the employment side, remember it's a positive duty to prevent sexual harassment. And as part of that positive duty, you have to look at all available resources, which would include this code. Please have a look at it because it's got really good practical examples and it's good resource. Yeah. Also remember the likelihood of prosecution around sexual ha harassment has jumped dramatically in the mm. last six months. We've seen Victoria now up to four prosecutions 
things. So I would say in two to three years' time, we will have across Australia 50 prosecutions around sexual harassment, okay? So it's not just plaintiff land that you're worried about anymore. The regulator is very active in this space. And the union too. Okay, let's get the case study. Yeah, (laughs) I'm going to read this one. Christmas is over. The office was quiet and few people had returned to work in the office. Tony, the managing director, was back and working from his large corner office. As he walked past four staff sitting in the kitchen, he asked Helen, the accounts clerk, to grab him a coffee from downstairs. When she returned with his coffee, he commented on her tan from the holidays and said she was looking great. She blushed and awkwardly retreated from the room. Out of the company's 120 staff, only around 10 to 15 were coming to work during January. It's all like our office, really, isn't it? <laughs> Tony increasingly <laughs> asked Helen to do menial tasks he would usually attend to himself. He would never ask his PA to do such tasks like get his coffee, put together some papers he was working on, help with his IT issues. It's not what a PA is for. <laughs> In any event, his PA had won his agreement to work from home over January to be near her kids before they returned to school. He started to get Helen to do jobs his PA would do. Yeah, that wasn't stayed to get Helen. That was started. That's what yeah. Helen was the youngest staff member in each day. She was compliant with all his requests but became increasingly anxious in her dealings with Tony because of his generous but somewhat odd comments around how good she looked, how her hair was done and makeup. He made no such comments to any other staff and he looked at her in a way like he was undressing her. He had her in his office more and more each day doing little things. She spoke to her manager to see if she could resume her flexible work of three days at work and two days at home. The manager came back and said Tony required her to be at work. She complained to the HR manager about Tony's conduct towards her and his refusal of flexible work, which was contrary to the practice of the company, her past work arrangements and the policies. An hour after playing to HR, Tony called her to his room. He was obviously angry. He said, what is wrong, Helen? I give you special attention, support you, and now rely upon you. And in return, you complain and seek to work more from home. I thought there was a real future for you here, but I was obviously wrong. I thought we had something special. Before she could respond, he said, off you go, work from home. I won't need your help anymore. My PA is back tomorrow. She left the office confused and in tears. After the discussion, Tony called in a manager explained he was disappointed in Helen's conduct and performance. He was happy for her to work from home as much as she wanted, but if things didn't improve, she would have to go. Helen's manager feared Tony. He asked no more questions and left the room to find Helen. The manager spoke to Helen, explained the conversation with Tony and asked what had happened. She couldn't speak. She was struggling to breathe and in panic. The manager sent her home to go see her doctor. There we go. So did Tony engage in misconduct? Yeah. Yeah, it's okay. Was sexual it harassment? harassment. Yeah. yeah. So let's just remember what sexual harassment is. It's unwelcome behaviour yeah. of a sexual nature. Yep. So definitely there. Was it discrimination? Yes. yes. Age, age, gender. And gender, yeah. yeah. So not good. Anything else under discrimination? Victimisation. Victimisation, yeah. The moment he didn't get what he wanted, he then punished her? Yeah. The, well, the moment she complained and he punished her for complaining, yeah. yeah. So who would be liable? Now, I put that in because no doubt Tony. No doubt the business, okay? Because Tony is the business, in effect, as managing director, so they're stuck. What about, like, the other managers as well? Yeah, no, they're in the, they're in the loop. Yeah. They're in the loop because they didn't do anything. This includes the HR manager in this case to provide her with a safe place of work. So that's more of an issue as we come yeah, down. Yeah, for safety, yeah. But in discrimination law, a plaintiff lawyer would join them just to blow it up and make yeah. everyone scared, Okay. Was his conduct a breach of safety law? Yeah, okay. could she take any other simple and immediate action oh, to sorry. stop the behaviour? The answer is she could get a stop order because it is both bullying and sexual harassment and the legislation now allows them. But she wouldn't bother. She would just follow a claim straight. Well, she'd do both. The advantage is now that she can do both. So she could. Yeah, but there's no point in getting the stop order. You can just file the claim to, to go after Oh, the no, you could. So plaintiff lawyer would go for a stop order as well because it's like an injunction. It's a cheap injunction. 
Yeah. They're not doing it, I know. But they're they're not, it's like a toothless thing. I don't, uh, I don't, I don't know, know how effective it is. Well, look, it's not effective when you look <laughs> at the amount of people who seek pooling orders. But can I say only seven of the pooling orders last year went through to final determination. Yeah. But that's because the plaintiff lawyers haven't woken up. It should be in their, their quiver of arrows that they're carrying around. They should use it. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to think of something else, oh but gosh. I made that one up as I went. Contact breach of safety law, absolutely. Reckless endangerment, without doubt, for yeah. Tony. Organisation, therefore, reckless. And Helen's manager and the HR manager, low-level breach is unlikely to be prosecuted. Probably just Section 25. Right? Yeah, yeah. But no, I don't think they'd be prosecuted, but could be because there's enough there to do. And the last is... Did she have a sound general protections claim? Yes. Yes. Underneath that, I think we go to workers' comp, don't we? We go up next page. Yeah, we did. Oh, if other men in the organisation engaged in similar behaviour, yeah. was Host there a risk of any? Yeah. Oh that would mean it was a hostile work environment. Host, which is an absolute winner in relation yeah. to serious, serious and plaintiff claims. And can have a class action on your hands yeah, too. Yeah, true. And would Helen have a sound workers' comp? Yes, she would. And with the changes in workers' comp law in Victoria, which make it harder to bring a claim, no, because it wasn't just workplace stress. Yeah, it wasn't like it, I'm just stressed, I've got anxiety. It's a significant injury. Yeah. We started talking very fast then because we ran out of time. Too, too much of this is our first <laughs> time back. Andrew clearly got very anxious about time. <laughs> so I'm sorry we gabbled towards the end. Lovely to see you, although we can't. Nice to be back. Yeah. Wonderful to be back. And thanks, we'll Dana. see you next week. Give see us you later, guys. Bye. Thumbs up. Bye. Bye-bye.